Welcome, podcast fans, to the first episode of Pitchfork Economics with Goldie. That's right, just me today running the show. And that's because I'm very excited. We're interviewing the authors of a brand new book uh, that I think you're all going to love. It's called Corporate Bullshit, Exposing the Lies and Half-Truths that Protect Profit, Power, and Wealth in America. And with me today are the three or three of the four authors, uh, Donald Cohen, the founder and executive director of the Research and Policy Center in Public Interest and the co-author of The Privatization of Everything. Welcome, Donald. Thanks for having me, Goldie. We have Joan Walsh, the national affairs correspondent for The Nation, the co-producer of the Emmy-nominated documentary, The Sit-In, Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show and the author of What's the Matter with White People. Welcome, Joan. Thanks, Goldie. Uh, really a pleasure to finally get you on the podcast. And my final guest, I don't know, some of you may have heard of him. It's Nick Hanauer, an entrepreneur and venture capitalist, the founder of the public policy incubator Civic Ventures, and the co-host, normally of Pitchfork Economics, my boss, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Goldie. Okay, so the three of you, uh, along with uh, uh, Zachary Roth, have uh, co-authored this book. And Nick, this is really a topic that is close to our hearts. I remember very early on coming to work with you, you pointed out that a lot of the things that people were saying on the minimum wage, specifically, oh, it's a job killer, it's uh, just going to hurt the people you're trying to help that they don't say this because it's true. They say it because it works and they say it again and again and again. Uh, when do you have that realization, Nick? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, for, for sure, my exposure to this trick or whatever you want to call it was mostly through our work on the minimum wage because in the absence of any empirical evidence, people kept on saying the same thing again and again and again. It'll be a job killer. It'll harm the very people it's intended to help. But, but oddly, they never said this other thing, which is, well, if we paid those workers more, our profits and our bonuses would be less. Weird. <laughs> which is which is weird, right? Like not, not as great, <laughs> not as great an argument in the no, public policy. No, no. And you're like, but. <laughs> Clearly, the thing you really care about is your profits and your bonuses. Why is it that you don't say that? Why is it that the public <laughs> argument you mount isn't an honest reflection of your, you know, of clearly what your priorities are? And the more you think about that and the more you unpack the social and psychological dynamics of why why the argument unfolds in that way, the more interesting the problem gets. And then, of course, I had the good fortune to be introduced uh, to Donald Cohen, who had had many of the same experiences. Right. The, the the same intuition that, in fact, these things are said over and over again. And in fact, go back a long way, Donald. How did, how did you get into this? And uh, I know uh, I was introduced to to the website, the Cry Wolf Project. Uh, how did that come about? 
Well, I, you know, just as you know, as, as what Nick said, I had, you know, I was dealing with job killer bills in California for many years and hearing the same arguments over and over again for, you know, everything that we were trying to do uh, and everything that everybody else was trying to do. I sort of noticed the pattern. I don't remember exactly, but I remember thinking, well, let's go see what they said before the things that we now take for granted, like Social mm-hmm. Security. The end of child labor, the Clean Air Act, and it turns out they were saying the same things. <laughs> so I raised some money from a foundation and decided to create what we called the Cry Wolf Project and created a website. And I was fortunate to get a fellowship at Georgetown for a while. So I spent some time in D.C. and access to all research. I read every hearing on the minimum wage since the 1930s. And what I found is that there's a that it it was common across many many issues many issues and I, I interviewed all sorts of folks doing different work on clean air and toxics and workplace safety and this wasn't new and then uh, realized that not only is it not new but they've been saying the same things for a hundred years and that's how the the book is organized I'm sure we'll get into that so the idea came I remember I remember in the office that let's turn this website, this database into a book because, oh my God, it's filled with some of the most amazing quotes. And that's where, Joan, you got pulled into this project. I'm curious, what did you think when you first saw this huge database of quotes? I was terrified, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was a lot. But what I loved about it was that it did cross lines. It was not organized by, you know, climate change, smoking laws, et cetera. It really was documenting the way that they use the same things over and over. And so that was the fun part about it, was to see that we are fighting the same battle over and over. And if we can organize, inform other people that this these are the arguments they use. They're, you know, we will we will do better than we're doing now. Cause I just think progressives, people who want positive change, we come at everything kind of anew. And we Mm -hmm. need to come at things knowing the background. And I feel like this is a handbook for people who care about any of these issues. You know know how how I think of this? I think of this as a vaccine. It's a vaccine against these these dangerous mimetic viruses. And so what it is, is we've chopped up all this stuff into little bits and you read these quotes and you see how they're used over and over again. And it immunizes that. That's my hope is that it immunizes readers so that the next time they hear one of these things, it's like, oh, no, I've got an antibody to that. I know that they said that what they're saying about the minimum wage now, they said about child labor in yeah. the 1890s. And, and before that, about <laughs> slavery. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they're still saying it. Yeah. And they're still saying it, you know. Yeah. DeSantis has those guidelines that say slavery was beneficial to some slaves. Yeah, that's um, right. And- it taught them skills, and you know, when you and they had it much better than the the free labor in the north. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> it, it goes on and on. So, Goldie, you know, one of the things that I think is really important that we don't really go into in the book, but you know, is important for people to know is. In in organizing my thoughts about this project, I talked to my friend Molly Crockett, who's one of the mm-hmm. world's leading 
neuroscientists and uh, sort of psychological researchers. And she does tons of work on uh, human moral reasoning. And she said this incredibly important thing to me, which is that with respect to humans, moral reasoning in humans, intention is everything, which is to say that if, if you purposefully in a premeditated way, kill somebody, that is something that you will get in a lot, a lot, a lot of trouble for. But if you're just driving your car and something, someone hurls themselves off a bridge onto your car, you are blameless, even though mm -hmm. the person is just as dead, right? And so humans make these very clear distinctions between people who mean to harm other people and people who are who don't mean to harm other people, which is why it is so important for people who are clearly doing harm to other people to clothe their intentions in pro-social acts, right? But this is why it's so important for businesses to say, you know, some form of, well, we would raise your wages, but that would be bad for you. Right. In other words, to disguise antisocial intentions in pro-social language, because if they merely said, we don't give a rip about you, the only thing we care about is our profits and our bonuses, and that's why we're keeping your wages low, people would burn the businesses down, right? right. Because their intention would be so clear. And so I think that that's the thing that people need to hold in their heads is that is that this is all about disguising intentions, because in the absence of that, there'd be riots in the streets, because once once you know that somebody is deliberately trying to harm you, then you get you, you know, you're not afraid anymore. Then you get angry and the shit and the bad shit will happen. You know, there are really hilarious quotes that we would, that we will now think of as hilarious in this book. But there is a seriousness. Now, there's some early quotes that we found about how lead was good for your health, right, from the lead mm -hmm. industry, when they knew that it wasn't. So, I mean, I'm talking, you know, 100, nearly 100 years ago, people died, right? right? People were harmed by the, you know, the lead industry and the gasoline industry's refusal and obfuscation and denial of problems about lead in the atmosphere and our paint in our toys. So there's a seriousness here when the intention... Yeah, I think that one of the things that we hope to do is expose that intention and the impacts of it. Right. But let's get to some of the hilarity, because it is a, actually a hilarious book. In so let, Let's be clear. This is not like a heavy tome like this big encyclopedia with uh, serious uh, discussions around everything. It is it is fun. It's a coffee table book. It's laid out in a fun, accessible way. You don't need to read it all at once. You get to pick it up, like kind of randomly turn to a page and go, oh my God, they said that about that? <laughs> jo Jode, would you, what are some of your favorite quotes from this book? Uh, the quotes that you discovered from this database that even shocked you? I mean, you know, that women having the vote would mean that men wouldn't marry them and babies <laughs> would die. Uh, that was one. You know, I, the lead one was really impressive. Smoking being really good for you. I did know that that was a thing in our lifetimes, actually. But yeah, it was kind of the the approach to 
this whole, you know, nightmare that really drew me that you have to, you've got to laugh. You've got to laugh sometimes. <laughs> and, and, you know, we've got cartoons and, you know, and it's just, it's really laughable. You know, it's ridiculous what they have been doing. And it's, I mean, I know that we are discovering something that has been kind of known but subterranean and it it's so important to bring it out. Yeah. Can I just share one quote about women's right to vote? <laughs> it's just so good. So let me read this to you. Women's participation in political life would involve the domestic calamity of a deserted home and the loss of the womanly qualities for which refined men adore women and marry them. Doctors tell us too that thousands of children would be harmed or killed before birth <laughs> by the injurious effect of untimely political excitement on their mothers. <laughs> right, like that's it. That's perfect. It's just, it's just unbelievable how far you will stretch to not have to say we want to have power and we don't want them to have any power <laughs> you know right. like it's it's, just like it, it's at once horrifying and and funny because you know in the moment they meant it seriously no, and we absolutely. can look back at that and laugh they, now and some of them believed it let's be honest yeah right you know on slavery let me just you know the Negro slaves of the South are the happiest and in some senses, the freest people in the world. The children and the aged and infirm work not at all. The women do little hard work and are protected from the despotism of their husbands by their masters. Oh, <laughs> it's just oh, like... oh I know that quote. That that was from a, a speech that Ron DeSantis gave just uh, last <laughs> month, right? No, it's just it's just just staggers the mind, the degree to which folks will go to protect their interests and the things that they'll say. But but always, you know, like what's just, again, what's just shocking is the quiet part is never said out loud. The powerful never advance the arguments that obviously are motivating them. Right. It, it just it's so funny. It's always like this pro-social language about, well, no, 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 it's good for you. You know, right. What I think is funny, both funny and interesting about the book is the way that there are similar arguments that are used again and again, but not not always on the same topic. How you see these themes Correct. that that run throughout the uh uh, the political polemic over the years. If you could maybe go through what some of these are. It's, you know, first, it's not a problem. Smoking won't cause, you know, doesn't cause cancer, right? Right. Um, I'll, I'll do it and then you can fill in, Nick. So, and then uh, secondarily, it's it's not our fault, it's your fault. You know, a work, you know, a coal mine fell because workers were irresponsible, not the coal operator creating the conditions. Um, job killer and everything, you know, then disaster. Uh, socialism and or you know or you're going to lose your freedom and then you know the one i think that nick likes the best is that you know this will hurt you you know this, what how do we how do we say it in the book nick You'll yeah things worse is that how yeah it? yeah yeah so it, you know again minimum wage will hurt you know is i think reagan said something like it's the you know the most anti-poor you know piece of legislation on the books so this will hurt the very people you're trying to help 
Yeah. Um, and we see these over and over again. And earlier, Golda, you said, you know, look as inoculation or, you know, or a vaccine for going forward. The next time people are going to see those arguments is in tomorrow's newspaper. <laughs> right. I see them every right. day. No, if an industry spokesperson is saying something, they are using one of these lies. I mean, it's just, it's uncanny. It's just uncanny. And again, I think what's so important is to, is to see the patterns because in and of themselves, like when you, when the new lie surfaces about the new circumstance, it always sounds plausible, right? You know, it's plausible that by regulating this behavior or charging more for whatever it is that the whole society will collapse. But it, until you realize that they've said that about everything for 200 years, right? It's so, the context makes such a difference. You know, one of the things that really animated my interest in this, you guys, I'm not sure if I ever told you, was that in my early work on the minimum wage, there was all this pushback. It'll be job killer, it'll be job killer, it'll be job killer. And especially when we were doing 15 in 2012. And I called Larry Michelle, who worked at EPI then, and asked him about an historical record. I'm like, well, has it killed jobs before? And he, his analysis had only gone back to the late 1990s or something like that. And I'm like, but we've been raising a minimum wage for like 100 years. Like, what, what happened the last 50 times? He's like, oh, I have no idea. I've never, nobody, nobody's ever done that analysis. So we hired an economist to go back and look at the employment data at every single time the minimum wage had been raised since inception. Is it 1928, 1938, Fair Labor Standards Act? And indeed, in zero cases, I think it was 24 times or something like that, that we had raised the minimum wage. There was Outside of a recession, if there was already a recession. That's right. If employment was already dropping in, an, in a recession, then the minimum wage, then wages went down. But in absence of that, there was literally zero evidence that there were fewer jobs after the minimum wage hike. And most consequentially, when you looked at the actual job data, the more affected the job was by the minimum wage. In fact, the more jobs there were created in the aftermath. It, it, it was absolutely fascinating. But until you can look back historically and, and realize that at every single point for 100 years or whatever is 90 years that people had tried to raise the minimum wage, that people who didn't want it to be raised because their profits would be uh, uh, moderated said the same exact thing. And in every single case that would never killed jobs, you, you just have to say to yourself, why is it that we have to have this fight every time? Yeah, so let, let me share. There was, you know, when I did the fellowship, one of the things I did was I looked at evidence after the fact on many of these laws, you know, laws and regulations and, you know, just like what Nick was saying. But realize that what we don't need is a debunking. We need pre-bunking. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a great yeah. phrase. And so because, you know, we'll get into the fight about the minimum wage and you'll have your data and I'll have, you know, it just that we lose when we're debunking. Right. We accept their right. premise. We need to say, no, your your premise is, you know, is a lie. <laughs> your premise is, a, you know, is a ruse. So that and that's what that's the direction that the project took is, you know, we need to ridicule these folks. And what yeah. I wanted early on, I, I told Nick and Jonas, I wanted to get Reagan's phrase. There they go again. And just yeah. dismiss it right out of hand as soon as they say it. 
Yeah. Can I, can I jump in about Reagan? Because in my life, the most, not the most important, but a very important insight realization was Ronald Reagan went from being the guy who talked about welfare cheats, welfare queens, young bucks buying, you know, mm-hmm. steaks on with food stamps. But then he moderated and he became the guy who said, we fought a war on poverty and poverty won. And it gave people permission to just think that if we're trying to help those people, we're hurting them. And so mm-hmm. we've got to come up with private sector solutions. We've got to cut things off, you know? And I and I think to this day that, I mean, the modern Republican party is not Reagan's party, I have to say. But I think to this day for responsible conservatives, that's still active and it it really changed our discourse. Mm-hmm. You know what stands out to me, Joan, uh, thinking back on the Reagan era, what Ronald Reagan was very successful at was ridiculing liberals. He turned, he helped turn the word liberal into a bad word that liberals were afraid to use. So they started calling themselves progressives. He destroyed the brand and it showed how successful ridicule can be uh, as a political tool. And that's what I love about this book. It is turning the tables back on the other side. It is a giant eye roll at everything they say and have said and continue to say for the past 150 years. Yeah. No, and you know, and there's another strategic element to this that you're highlighting, Goldie, which I want to emphasize again, and that is the role, the essential role of ridicule in these sorts of discourses. Because again, just circling back to one of the statements that you made early, they don't say these things because they're true. They say these things because they're an effective way to prosecute their interests. And If you think that you are going to talk the Chamber of Commerce out of saying that raising wages kills jobs by showing them the economic evidence, you are deeply, deeply naive. Right. This is a mistake that Democrats make. Exactly. That that you can win on the facts. You You can't win on the facts. No, they don't (laughs) care about the facts. They care about their profits. Right. The Chamber of Commerce does not represent business. The Chamber of Commerce represents the economic interests of the owners of capital and the executives who run those companies. And the lower wages are, the higher their profits are. It's that simple. It's not more complicated than that. And at the heart of this, what what's funny is at the heart of this, for what we would say are these immoral intentions, they're winning by making moral arguments because that's exactly all of these arguments are moral arguments. They are all moral arguments. You know, when you read this book and you go back and you look the things they said about child labor, defending child labor, it, you know, if we got rid of child labor, it'd be bad for the children, right? They'd they'd starve. I I don't have the quote quotes in front of me. Maybe, maybe one of you could put, uh, can give us some of these, but in fact, they're making these quotes today yes. and about child labor. They're yeah. still arguing for child labor. 
The, the Heritage Foundation ha, has a spokeswoman. I forget her name. I apologize. But she's like, this teaches them discipline. Mm-hmm. They have to get up and dress correctly. They get some money that they learn how to manage money. And it's so much better for them than not being a child laborer. And it's <laughs> like when I found this, I sent this to Nick and Don. And I was just like, oh, my God. Yeah, there is no bottom. There is no bottom. bottom. But more importantly, there's no end. There's no end to this. They will continue. So this gets me thinking. uh, I'm wondering. I don't know if any of you know this. You've created this book. Uh, as I said, in order to immunize the public against these, it's a, we're, we're collecting them all in one place. You can see them in context. You can see how these 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 quotes, uh, how all this bullshit connects to each other, the logic behind it and why it works. The fact that they're so consistent in saying these same things over and over again. Do you think there's a a secret evil like guidebook on the other side that they that, that maybe we haven't discovered that that oh when you get to child labor this is what you say when you get to minimum wage this yeah, these are the main talking points on uh how to increase profits and uh yeah they hand them out at the harvard business school it might be is it in the latest edition of mencu i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you graduate, they slip this to you in your uh, diploma at Harvard. Right. But it, <laughs> don't show anybody. This is our secret. Well, and, and law school, right? So as, as well. So think about, I mean, listen, you know, some of these things, they're just protecting their interests by saying stuff. And other times they are actively lying, you know, climate change. We are suffering from climate change now because the oil companies, you know, propagated doubt and lies. Right. Yeah, right. In some cases, it's far more organized. You know, the tobacco industry, the other industries. In other cases, it's just the standard run-of-the-mill greed. But again, get getting to that point when you connect these things, the same arguments that they use to create doubt over climate change, for the same arguments they use to create doubt over tobacco, or the same arguments that they use to create doubt over lead. These same arguments are used; they're recycled over and over again. Because they work. And and by the way, I, I just, silly me, I know there is a guidebook. We all know what it is that they use. It's called Capitalism and Freedom. <laughs> no, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. 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 Got a little bit of that. It's kind of like women have to learn that there are certain lies that men, bad men, let's say, will tell you about what's going on. It's me. It's not you or gaslighting you about their intentions. And you have to, women have a code of sharing these ideas and sharing their experiences. And it's really deep and it's really been important. And for some reason, this set of traits and this set of lies has not been shared in a popular way until this book. So I'm really proud of that. Yeah, no, it's really true. There is this, I mean, Goldie, it's interesting, you know, the question you raised glibly about is, is there a code book that you get gets hand out that teaches people how to tell these lies? And I, I, I think the answer is no, although that that's not true. I am sure there are tons of right. 
professional PR right. people who are trained in these tactics, who absolutely go to work knowing how to spin this bullshit and are proud of their ability to obfuscate the truth and to lead people down antisocial paths. Um, right. Like the other EPI, the yeah, the, the, the fake correct. EPI that works for the restaurant industry. What, what's his name? Saltzman, whatever, who, right, who just trots these out and gets yes. gets quoted credulously by reporters yeah. and writes his op eds. And he knows exactly what he's doing uh, because he does the same thing every time. I personally love learning about the fight for the minimum wage in Seattle and how it was going to destroy the restaurant industry uh -huh. and I didn't have any place to eat when I came there. And when I've been there, there are some really great restaurants and it, you know, it's thriving. The whole restaurant industry is fine. It, it's antisocial. I love, I love that take on it. It's antisocial and it's a lie. And if you test out any of these claims, you know. And let me make a point that so there's, you know, in the last few years, disinformation and gaslighting has become a thing that we're all talking about over the last few years, but it's been about politics. This right. is a book that will turn this and say, but wait a second, we've been gaslit and, and been fed disinformation for 100 years to the end of corporate and personal wealth and interest. So yes. I think that that's really an important thing this book does is it makes gaslighting and disinformation an economic reality that we've been facing for many years. Yeah, you know, speaking of the gaslighting industry, you actually have uh, uh, in the book a mobile mobile oil ad from 19, was it in the New York Times from 1997? Uh, warning about the science that the science of climate change is uncertain and would plunge the world into economic turmoil. Now we're living through the worst year of right. the planet between right. the wildfires and drought. Yeah, I mean, they did that. Right. So you see the impact. Again, it's a funny book in many ways. It's also kind of a scary book. Yeah, because you can see throughout history how effective this corporate bullshit has been, which, of course, is why they keep doing it. Yeah. And again, you know, I know we're we're, we're, we're attempting to sell our book here, but I really <laughs> I really do feel strongly that, you know, every citizen should acquaint themselves, uh, but whether whether you are on the left or the right, uh, you are harmed equally by these lies. <laughs> You know, Democrat and Republican children will both die from E. coli in equal measure if we uh, if we do not properly regulate our food food system. Right? Uh, we are all equally. Um, that that was a job killer, Nick. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, getting E. coli out of the ground beef oh supply. Oh my god! Yeah. Come on. That. Yeah. I mean. Oh, yeah. Right. You know, I really feel strongly that this is a very easy way to create context for all of the things you experience every day in your life and will allow you to process the information that is pointed at you in a much more successful way by having context. And can I just add, it's really exciting that it's coming out on Halloween because <laughs> yeah, it's scary. It's spooky. You know, give it to your friends. It, 
it's just perfect Halloween present. That's right. It belongs on the coffee table of every American family. Well, well, as as our regular listeners know, we we always have one final question for our guests. I'm going to start with you, Donald. Why do you do this work? I do this work, and I may you know I was on once before, so maybe it was the same answer. I do this work because I hate hate and I hate greed. That's why I do this work. That's a that's a pretty succinct. That's maybe the most succinct answer we've gotten in a long time, uh, Jones. Uh, why do you do this work? I was raised to do this work. This is what it meant to be Catholic when I was when I was a little kid. You cared about people who were less fortunate. And as I've gotten older, I've seen it more broadly. But really, that's that's the answer. Okay, so social justice Catholic, the best kind, Catholic, very much. Yeah, so. yeah. And ah, uh, oh, finally, I get to ask this. I know you've you've tortured guests with this for a long time, Nick. Why do you do this work? Yeah, that's a darn good question. I mean, I think Don's answer was succinct. I think it, for me, it's slightly broader than that. I just, I hate injustice. I find people who deliberately harm other people to be objectionable. And, you know, we grew up in a world where you know, as we've talked billions of times, you know, like we grew up in this neoliberal world, you and I, Goldie, and we were in many ways actively encouraged to bring harm to other people. We were told that it was economically efficient to bring harm to other people. And I just always knew that was bullshit. And it's, it is a great use of time, money, and energy to push back on that and try to bend the arc of history towards justice just a tiny bit. Well, uh, I'm going to add on to that, Nick, and I know you would agree with this, and I assume Donald and Joan will too. Uh, one of the reasons why I do this work is that I love winning. Yes. And <laughs> this is the type of book that it takes to win. It's not the only thing we need to do, but it helps. Just making people aware of how the other side is trying to manipulate you, sometimes how your own side is trying to manipulate you. And that's why... I'm going to make an ask. I know, Nick, you're going to make an ask. Uh, this book comes out in a week on Halloween. It's important for the way the book industry works that we get some pre-sales. So we're going to ask you all to go out and uh, and buy this book in advance because that's how you get on the bestseller list. And that's how more people see this book. And the more people that see this book and read this book, the more people will understand the corporate bullshit that has been influencing our politics for the past 150 years. And really, if you think about it, going all the way back, at least to the Romans. <laughs> yes, correct. Correct. Couldn't be more true. Well, Joan, Donald, and uh, Nick, thank you for joining Pitchfork Economics, yes. of course. We will provide uh, links to the book in the show notes. Again, we we urge you to go out there and uh, pre-order this. You can get it from your favorite local independent bookstore, uh, or you know, there's always that big online monopol monopolist that makes it convenient. So, you know, use the monopolies to help destroy them by making this uh, book a bestseller. 
Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.